It's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. Well, welcome to the Jason in the House podcast. I'm Jason Chaffetz, and uh, thanks for joining us. We're going to have a good discussion, talk about a few things in the news. Got to bring on the stupid because, you know, there's always somebody doing something stupid somewhere. And then uh, thrilled to have uh, Marianne Williamson. You know, she's a long shot uh, candidate for the Democratic nomination on the Democratic side of the aisle. Um, She's done surprisingly well, I think for most people's estimation in the polling. Um, and uh, we thought we'd have a discussion uh, about her, get to with her a little bit more about her life and growing up and her perspective. And uh, I've never had a conversation with her, but I look forward to having it. And I think it'll be a good one with uh, Marianne Williamson. But before we get to that, let's talk about a few things in the news. I, I still, I know it happened a little while ago, but I, the the devastation in Hawaii with that fire is unbelievable to me. Uh, I'm somebody with my wife and I have been very blessed through the years. We have regularly gone to Hawaii. We we love it there. Um, you know, and being more of a living out west, uh, certainly with uh, Delta Airlines as a hub in in Salt Lake City, you can fly direct. Uh, to Hawaii. In fact, in many ways, it's easier to get there than it is a lot of places on the East Coast. And uh, with a straight shot, it's a little bit further. But it, you know, when you get a direct flight into Maui or, uh, or or to any one of the islands out of out of Salt Lake, we have gone there a lot through the years. I have walked those streets of Lahaina, I don't know how many times, and getting ice cream and just having fun and going to a place called Prison Pizza was one of our favorite uh, little pizza joints. There, we'd get it, eat it there, or just bring it back to our hotel. Um, just walking around. It was such a beautiful, iconic place. And to see that fire just tear it apart, I, I just, I still, I know it happened a while ago, but those poor people in, in uh, who woke up and then by the end of the day, their life was turned upside down. I hope we as Americans can pour our hearts out and, uh, and help them in any way possible. It is one of the most beautiful, scenic places on the planet. Good quality people. And uh, for anybody who has to live through a natural disaster or a fire or something like that and have their whole life just wiped out, um, a heart goes out to them. Um, and I just wanted to mention that. On another front, I thought this, I thought this was pretty interesting. So, again, a little while ago, President Biden was down in Arizona um, and he was doing a hardball, you know, hard cutting interview on the Weather Channel. Uh, He had designated some one million acres near the Grand Canyon. And uh, I can tell you how devastating that is to the local economy and how wrong it is as a public policy to designate that land and set it aside devastating for ranchers and people that mine that area for our own national security efforts. I don't want to get into all that. But what I thought was fascinating about this interaction, and it's just another example of uh, what President Joe Biden does, is he's doing this interview with Stephanie Abrams, who seems 
very competent, very good, and nothing against Stephanie. But evidently a bug landed on her, and uh, and so the president awkwardly on her kind of chest, shoulder area, wipes it away, which I that was a little, you know, you might tell somebody, but to actually brush it off their chest or their on camera. I mean, it was just bizarre. But then he was asked um, uh, by Stephanie Abrams uh, why the president had not yet declared a national emergency on climate change. Well, his answer to that was, quote, already done that, end quote. And then they moved on, only to be found out later that, no, the president has not done that. And how he continues to get away with these, oh, I've already done that. When he did not do that, should have been called out more far, more wide. Um, and you can't just brush all this stuff up. Well, he's old, he's senile, he's whatever. He's totally misrepresenting uh, the public policy that a lot of those people on the left side of the political spectrum want to see put in place. I wouldn't be in favor of it, but it is something that the Democrats and the far left is is adamant about. And he just went up there and just just got away with it. Nobody really reported. Nobody really highlighted how wrong he was about that public policy. All right. Last thing I want to talk about in the news and uh, Mayor Adams, oh, I don't know, it was two weeks ago or something. He came out and it, it's just a devastating statistic. But he said that the uh, migrant community, some would say illegal immigrants, some would say, okay, they're going through the adjudication process, whatever you want to call that group of people in a humane way. But that migrant community is set to double, double by 2024. That's next year. Now, they're paying, we're, the New Yorkers are paying. This is, again, one city, not the entire state. New York City is paying something like $2.9 billion. They're going to pay $4.7 billion by 2024. Now, this was a sanctuary city in a sanctuary state. They've asked for it. They have come. And now they're realizing, oh, my goodness, there's too many of them. But it was the public policy of President Biden and Vice President Harris that led to this. There is a direct correlation by changing the public policy. And guess what? Now, places like New York and Boston and Chicago and all these major Democratic-run cities who are sanctuary states who want to offer free housing, free education, free health care, free everything for everybody for free, guess what the bills come and do? And it's billions of dollars in a city that can't handle it. They can't handle it. They don't have the money for it. And don't be leaning on the federal government and think that people in Iowa and Nebraska and Mississippi and Florida and Louisiana, why, why should they all have to pay for this? I don't want to have to pay for it. I didn't do this. And uh, they're the ones that had this public policy, and they're the ones that invited them to come to those cities. But nevertheless, that's what's going on in New York. All right, time to bring on the stupid, because, you know, there's always somebody doing something stupid somewhere. All right, we're going to go to Senator Bernie Sanders. Senator Bernie Sanders, um, he wired $200,000, each in $100,000 chunks, to the Sanders Institute. Well, the Sanders Institute happens to be related to Bernie Sanders. It was established by Bernie Sanders' wife and Bernie Sanders' son. 
Not be surprised, the Sanders Institute spends north of 30% of its uh, resources on salaries. Now, we don't yet know how much his wife or son may have taken uh, in terms of salaries themselves, but isn't that interesting to go out and raise the money as a campaign contributions, then wire it over to the Sanders Institute established by your wife and son? Seems a little too close to comfort. For me, that's bringing on the stupid. All right, it's time to bring on uh, Marianne Williamson. I'm excited to dial her up, get her on the line, talk about her, her future, but where she came from, what she did. She's got a really interesting background with Oprah Winfrey and all this. So let's uh, let's start our conversation with Marianne Williamson. Hey, Jason, how you doing? Hey, this is Jason Chaffetz. Hey, Marianne Williamson, I'm so glad to be talking to you. Thanks for uh, picking up. I appreciate joining us. Well, I'm glad to have a chance to speak to you as well. I've seen you on television, and uh, I'm glad we're connecting. Well, thank you, and I've I've seen you out there as well. And look, uh, you you're, you decided you're going to run for president. You want you wanted the Democratic uh, nomination, and uh, I'm thrilled to be able to talk with you and understand why you want to do this, what you're doing. Um, and a little bit more about your life, because all of a sudden we see people out on the national stage and we don't know a whole lot about them. So I'd, I'd like to get to know you a little bit better. Great. Let's do it. Well, so let's go back to um, I was born in and kind of walk us through that. I may interrupt you from time to time, but uh, tell us uh, kind of how you got there so that, you know, here we are, you and I having this conversation. OK, I was born in Houston, Texas. I was raised there. Uh, my father was born and raised in poverty in uh, outside Detroit and uh, then in Rock Island, Illinois. And my mother was born and raised in Houston. And my father fought in World War II. And he was an immigration lawyer. Hmm. He had been given a scholarship uh, by a Catholic university in the Midwest. He was an immigration lawyer. And also my parents were uh, big travelers. They were always traveling. And during the summers, we would travel a lot. They would take us. And so when I was starting, when I was 10 years old, uh, I traveled all over the world. And I think that that did a lot to inform me on some really deep levels that people are the same everywhere. I think when you take your children as much as possible to travel, there are just ways that things get under the skin. You know, when it's an experience that a child has. And then, um, so I grew up, I was born in 1952. So I grew up very much in the sort of countercultural milieu of the late 60s and 70s. But particularly, it was a time when I was young where, like in school, you read Ram Das and Alan Watts in the morning. And you went to anti-war, Vietnam anti-war protests in the afternoon. So that period of time was not as divided in terms of different silos and different lanes. There was just a sense that we were all many things. It was, in a way, a more holistic time. Now you're told to stay in your lane, as though human beings have lanes. I think politics should belong to everyone. I think citizenship is everyone's not only right, but responsibility. And I don't think that the founders intended for there to be a political class. 
And they're the only ones who should be considered qualified for anything, particularly given where we are. Nobody right. in either right. Democratic or Republican circles has anything to be self-congratulatory about right now, given the state of our economy, state of our healthcare uh, system, given the state of our democracy, given the state of our environment. So I think, if anything, uh, we need more voices, not fewer, of people who've just been living in this country, conscious citizens. I've always been, you know, politically active. Um, and uh, I, my career has led me more in the direction of issues of personal and spiritual transformation and and nonprofit activism. I have um, uh, founded nonprofit organizations. But what I have come to see, particularly over the last 20 years, is that no amount of private charity can compensate for a basic lack of social justice. When you have 80% of Americans basically left out of the real engine of prosperity in this country, something is deeply, deeply wrong. And I think we're living at a time when the American people on both left and right are figuring that out. So let, let's go back to that childhood. I don't know if you had brothers, sisters, <laughs> what life was like growing up. I mean, you talk about your you know, your father, thank him for, you know, thanks to his uh, his service, service, serving in the in the military. But um, brothers, sisters, what was life like growing up for you? Brother. I have an older brother who is an immigration lawyer in Houston, and I had an older sister and she died of breast cancer in 1994. Mm. And I have uh, nieces. My brother had four girls. My sister had three girls and I have one daughter. Oh, very good. Now, when you were like in grade school and high school, were you were you playing sports? Were you was a I what? nerd? Were you playing sports? Were you, I mean, what was what were you doing in those kind of formative years of you know grade school and then high school? I was very involved in drama classes. Uh huh. School government, you know. I remember I was a cheerleader in the ninth grade, but I didn't really understand the game, so I would just, <laughs> I would just follow what the other girls. That were wasn't doing. a prerequisite. That, <laughs> that the was other the... girls went yay, I went yay. <laughs> you know? Well, it's a way to be social. But when did you figure out that you know um, I can speak? Because not everybody can articulate yeah. and speak out loud. Not everybody can write, and you seem to be yeah. able to do both. So, where did that skill set come from? I remember in in junior high school, there used to be these debate tournaments, and I'm sure there still are. And I was in the category of extemporaneous speaking. And um, there was a speech that Eleanor Roosevelt had given called the United Nations as a Bridge. And I remember that was the speech I gave, and I, I won a lot of contests. And also, there was one other thing that happened. In 1968, Bobby Kennedy was assassinated, and I was... Um, 16 years old. Mm -hmm. And there is a place in Houston, in Herman Park there, uh, that's an uh, outdoor theater. And I went with some of my friends because in those days, those assassinations just blew us open. You know, those assassinations were... Yeah, they're dramatic. Very, very dramatic and traumatic for everyone. And I remember we went to the, it was called the Miller Outdoor Theater. I think it's still there. And... I got up on stage and I started eulogizing Bobby Kennedy. And um, it was a moment. It was a moment. Um, when I finished, everybody sort of looked at me. And I sort of remember thinking myself, like, 
well, I'm, I do this. Yeah. You had an amazing moment, right? And people, and, and, and people gravitate to, I think, what they, that they like, what they're good at. So your, your high school, your, then, then what? Where, where did you decide, like, okay, this is what I'm good at. This is what I like. This is where my passion is. What did you do from there? I went to Pomona College uh, in Claremont, California. Mm-hmm. And I was studying both philosophy and theater. And in my junior year, I left and I promised my parents I would be coming back. And I didn't. And I would take classes like one semester at University of New Mexico. I took classes at University of Texas. But then I never, never actually went back. And I ended up in my 20s having experiences that I can only see in retrospect were deeply informative um, about a lot of things in America. And in my mid 20s, and I was always interested, I'm Jewish. I studied a lot of comparative religion in college. So I'd read a lot of Christian theology, but a lot of comparative religion. I've always been fascinated by really anything of the higher mind. So I would read Carl Jung, and I would read St. Augustine. I would read Martin Heidegger, and I would also read, you know, Teresa of Avila. I would read the Kabbalah. Uh, I, I would read, you know, Houston Smith, The Religions of Man. That was always fascinating. And my parents would say to me, well, go back to school and become a comparative religion teacher, philosopher, teacher professor. And I was like, no. And then my parents would say, well, go to rabbinical school. And I would go, no, none of those things quite felt right for me. And my parents were going nuts because all I wanted to do was really read books about these kinds of things. And yeah, but what are you going to do? What are you going to do? Right. And then I started reading a book called um, A Course in Miracles. Now, A Course in Miracles is not a religion. There's no dogma or doctrine, but it's sort of about the psychology of living a faithful life. What that if we're going to say we're going to love each other, how do you kind of do that on a daily basis? We're going to say we are here to love and to forgive one another. How do you kind of do that on a daily basis? If you say you're going to live a life of faith and in service to God's will, what does that mean? How do you do that? What how do in your moment by moment um life experiences? I think there's a disconnect for a lot of people. Um, between practical everyday reality and trying to live a faithful life. Yeah. So my parents, so I I wanted to just talk about these things. And I would talk about them in little bookstores and things. And then when I moved to Los Angeles, I started working at this book publisher place called the uh, Philosophical Research Society. And it was just where they read those kinds of books. And then I started speaking to little groups of people who were usually much older than me. And then what happened was that the AIDS crisis blew up. Mm, yeah. And when the AIDS crisis blew up. It There was a lot of silence from a lot of the organized religious institutions because everybody was having to work through their stuff about gay people and homophobia. And there was just a lot of silence on the part of medical community. It was a lot like COVID. They were trying. It wasn't like people weren't trying, but we had a terrible disease on our hands. And it was like it was like COVID in that. It was very different and same. It was like COVID in the sense of how much panic 
there was. But with COVID, it was easy to get, but you probably would survive. With AIDS, it was hard to get, but if you got it, you would probably die. Right, yeah. And there was a woman, me, who at that time was young, only 31 years old, talking about a God who loves you no matter what. And that, and how we're here to love one another, and that when we love one another, miracles happen. And so gay men in Los Angeles really gave me my career because all of a sudden everybody started coming to these lectures because there was such panic in the city. Then someone suggested I write a book based on my lectures, which was bought, and Oprah Winfrey read the book. Now, younger people today don't know what it means that Oprah Winfrey liked your book. But in those days, that was even a big though, deal. <laughs> big deal. So even though that was before she had a book club, when she got on television and said it's the best book I've ever read, I had a national career that day. Right, right, right. Yeah, literally <laughs> between the morning and the afternoon. Oprah Winfrey, yeah, you're right. For for some of the younger people that listen, it she had an audience and, and yeah. they were loyal and they were faithful and they were, they were all the positive things you could think about it. People gravitated just wondering well, you know, and what she would stupid. say and what she would bless and like, and boy, for her to like your book was, had to I'll change your life. I think in a way all hell broke loose in this country when she went off the air. And I'll tell you why every, every afternoon, Monday through Friday, we kind of had a town hall in human decency. Hmm. Every day. It was like a place where the country kind of got together. There was no sense of left or right, who was Democrat, who was Republican, who was none of that. There was just, we got together, and far more often than not, she was bringing up a topic that reminded all of us of our humanity. And I think that the world, in some way, was a better place when she was holding that space among us culturally. Now, remind me, you did more than just, you know, having her say, oh, we liked her book, and then move on, right? You did a whole number of things with her, or she did with you, right? Well, yeah, I was, uh, I did her um, uh, serious radio show. She gave me tremendous opportunity. I did radio with her, and then, you know how it is in life. Somebody opens the door, you still have to walk through it. Right, You know, right. I continued to write. Uh, she did have me on quite a few times, and then I founded nonprofit organizations, particularly with AIDS, because, as I said before, there was that AIDS phenomenon there. And uh, we started an organization, a kind of Meals on Wheels uh, service to homebound people with AIDS that today has served over 16 million meals. Wow. Uh, well. I was in Los Angeles last week for the celebration of their $50 million capital campaign for a new building. But, you know, I, I said in my talk in L.A. last week, on one hand, we celebrate the success of the organization. But on the other hand, the fact that the organization has grown so much is not good news. It just means that that many more people right, are right, right. critically hungry and poor and at home with no food unless someone brings it to them. So I feel that the success of that organization really bespeaks a profound societal failure. That was not true when it was AIDS, because that was, you know, no, nobody's fault. But that was what you call a screaming emergency. And in in the field like that, there's a lot of talk about the difference between a screaming emergency and a silent emergency. 
And a silent emergency is when it's not one big epidemic, but it's just how many millions of people are living in poverty, how many millions of people are hungry, mm. how many millions of people uh, have to work two or three jobs. Those are emergent. That's an emergency in, in the life of someone who is relegated to that uh, circumstance, locked into it, can't get out. And that is how I started feeling like, no, it's going to take political change to change that, because those are issues that no amount of personal transformation can assuage. So at what point did you, as you're going along, you've had success, now you've got notoriety to go along with it. And so at what point do you wake up one morning and say, you know, what I should really do is run for political office? (laughs) Well, when I worked with people with AIDS and then a lot with people with other life-challenging illnesses, it became very much a part of my work to be there for people in their darkest hours. I was the person who would call me after the doctor had already said, we've done all that we can do, after the accountant had said, Mm. your only choice is bankruptcy, Um, after the spouse had left, after the news had come back, the test results were not good, you have cancer. And it was a great privilege in my life, you know, a great to be up close and personal and trusted by people to, to sort of be there in their darkest hours to help them yeah, endure. Yeah. But when I moved to Detroit, Michigan at the end of the 1990s, I saw how many people were living with the same level of trauma and suffering who had done everything right. They'd done everything right. They did everything they could possibly could. They just wanted to raise their kids. They just wanted to be good people. And the, everything was so stacked against them. I saw it over and over and over again. They didn't have health care. They had to work two or three jobs. And I'm old enough that I remember the 70s. I remember a time when the average working American could afford a house, when the average working American could afford a car, when the average working American could afford a yearly vacation and could afford the parents, one parent to stay home if they wanted and could afford to send their kids to college. I remember it. I'm a, a generation that remembers that. And I'm like, what is going on here? And that's when I realized, you know, somebody said to me um, when I was living in Michigan, a very high powered U.S. government person said to me, Miss Williamson, do you have any ideas what we should do about the mental health crisis? And I remember saying, yeah, stop driving everybody crazy. <laughs> I realized that these people were not the victim of cancer. They weren't the victim of, of those kinds of just things that happened. They were the victim of bad public policy. And I realized that, well, if you move $50 trillion from the middle class to a small group of Americans and you tell them that it's a good thing, see, because all that money will trickle down because they're job creators, but then the business model of those people is not job creation, it's job elimination. Then you realize something's wrong in the society. And I think, Jason, that because of my work with Oprah, because of my success as an author, and then because of my working at churches and really being deep down in in, in with people, I feel, I always say to people, I'm very socioeconomically well-traveled. Right. Uh, had quality time with the richest of the rich in this country and the poorest of the poor of this country. And this is what I've learned. Nobody has a monopoly on moral values. Not every rich person is a greedy bastard. Not every poor person is holy and pure. Everybody, there's a decency in all of us. Neither group has the better people or the jerks. That's not what it's about. But the system itself is rigged. 
The system itself is rigged in policy after policy. This country works in such a way. If you already have capital, have easy access to capital, then you have easy access to the basic minimums for a life in which you and your children can thrive. And if you don't, God help you. And people are figuring it out. Let me tell you something. I saw it in my last campaign, and I'm seeing it in this one. And I want to tell you something. Need a political party is ready to recognize the realignment, the political realignment going on in this country. It's not about left versus right. It's about the powerful versus the powerless. It's about people who are just struggling to survive, the majority of Americans living in economic stress versus what they realize on both sides of the political spectrum now are corporate and billionaire forces who are basically looting and holding hostage to the U.S. government. And it's a person who speaks into that that I think should be president, and that's why I'm running. You're listening to Jason in the House. We'll be back with more of my conversation with Marianne Williamson right after this. Fox News Radio On Demand on the Fox News app. Download the app and just click listen. When you swipe left, you can listen to your favorite Fox News talk shows live. Swipe right for the latest Fox News Radio newscasts on demand. Fox News Radio on the Fox News app. Download it today. So you're running, you know, in order to get where you want to go, you want to get the Democratic nomination, of which Joe Biden has said he's running for re-election. So what... Why do you believe that you can actually pull this off? And what is it that he that you could do that he's not doing in order to that you think will compel you or, you know, propel you to where you want to go? First of all, I do want to point out that in the latest New York Times poll among Gen Z, I'm only seven points behind the president. The president is at 34 percent. I'm at 27%, and Bobby Kennedy's at 13%. So I see the young people today as sort of the canary in the coal mine. That's number one. Number two, when you ask me what makes me think I can, you know, I have come because I ran before. I admire anyone who runs for president of either party. It is hard. The abuse you take, the insults you take, it's hard. And you don't know if you can win. But your gut says it's the right thing to do. That's the person. That's, the, the to me, the consciousness of the public servant. I think things need to be said. Some of the things that you and I have been talking about already, they need to be said. That's all. And in terms of people choosing, I believe that in a democracy, the American people should have access to their options. I do not believe the DNC should just be dictating that Joe Biden is the candidate. You know, I was on Fox earlier today. You've got a and and you've got this Arizona poll that just came out right with with the president and the former president neck and neck. Well, I'm sorry when you have a four time indicted person on one side and the other person is only neck and neck. That bespeaks to me a lack of enthusiasm. The Democrats are very vulnerable. If President uh, Biden, I believe, is our candidate, I think that the American people deserve and want the option of a fundamental economic change in this country. Just they should have the same things they have in every other advanced democracy. Universal health care. They have it in all the others. Tuition free college and tech school. They have it in all those other countries. And it's not that things are too complicated here. It's that they're corrupt. 
the insurance companies, the pharmaceutical companies, big agricultural companies. Why we have? Why do we have so many carcinogens in our food compared to other countries? Toxins in our water. Forty-six percent of uh, tap water in the United States is filled with these forever chemicals. Uh, the fact that you know, and, and you know, both and and Republicans and Democrats both. The majority want, the majority in both want universal health care and in both want um, uh, tuition-free college. And this one is really interesting to me. Majority of Republicans and Democrats, even gun owners, want more common sense gun safety laws. Well, and you and I probably disagree on a number of these issues. But I, okay. I mean, I, and I, but, yeah, I mean, but that's okay. Like, I'm not afraid of the debate and the discussion, but, you know, earlier you mentioned, you know, the system's rigged. And what I don't understand is uh, on the Democratic side of the aisle, how they think they can go through this process with no debates. Like, I find Thank that you. fundamentally unfair. It's sort of the American way too. that the underdog, <laughs> the underdog gets a shot, you know? And so, I mean, well, you know, yeah, I'm seeing that from afar. Look, I'm on the Republican side of the aisle. There's no mystery about that. But I look at it and say, how can you have no debates? Like, I don't I know, get that. Un- well, you know, I've always felt that the Democrats have the more egalitarian policies, but a more elitist relationship to our own constituency. You guys have the more elitist policies, but a more egalitarian relationship with your own constituency. It's very ironic to me. <laughs> That's You're an interesting way of putting it. I... It's- but it's so, and, and the majority of Democrats, poll after poll, show that they want to hear from other people. But the DNC, uh, you know, George Washington warned us in his farewell address about political parties. He said they would form factions more concerned with their party than with their uh, country. And it's true. John Adams said he thought it was the biggest uh, threat to our democracy. We've all got to come out of our silos. Like you you said a minute ago, you're a Republican, I'm a Democrat. I grew up at a time when, so what? <laughs> so what? You still talk and you still talk about politics and sure. you don't have to agree with everything. And we're still friends at the end of the day. Americans want, don't want to feel like in order to love our country, we have to hate other Americans of any whether it's just this has got to stop. Well, and, and correct me if I'm wrong. OK, so again, from my kind of conservative um, yeah. uh, viewpoint, I really yeah. do believe it seems like through my life I've seen this. It's morphed where the Democrats, particularly of late, have been one of division. Like, everybody has to be put into a box or a group or a, a, a division. It, it, it's There's not this unification. You know, I see, I've got grandkids now, okay? So I'm old enough to have grandkids. I see my grandkids playing with others. They don't care what their skin color is. They don't care what their background is, how much, they don't care about any of that. But they seem to be taught that. And the ones that I hear the most, like overwhelming, off the charts, talk about the divisions of this country, to talk about um, it, are, are the people that preach this whole idea of diversity, but they are the least diverse among us. They, they do not like conservative viewpoints, do not like conservative thought. They The Democrats of today have, have morphed into this um, it's okay to suppress free speech. I mean, the liberal Democrats of the past were like, no, all speech goes. But now I see them, they just want to 
tamp it down. They shouldn't even be allowed to say things. And what? Where am I wrong in, in my analysis well, or viewpoint of that? I think you're wrong in your analysis. I think you're doing something which you wouldn't want me to do either. We're not a monolith any more than the Republican Party is. Yeah. So I could start talking about some shadow sides of the Republican Party, but the shadow side, there are many Republicans about whom that would not be true. Right. Yeah. I agree with you. Jer- I agree with you on that. That's the only thing I would say. What you pointed to was a kind of shadow element, just as I could certainly point to a shadow element in in the Republican Party. So I think what we need to do is to affirm, you know, I, Eisenhower said that the American mind at its best is both liberal and conservative. There are high-minded conservative values. There are high-minded uh, liberal values. And this is how I feel. When I talk often, and I have friends who are like very intelligent conservatives, right? And even when I have a conversation with some intelligent conservative friend, even when at the end, I'm like, no, my ultimate position remains the same. My understanding and my analysis of the situation was expanded. Right. And I was reminded none of us have a monopoly on truth. And that's so important that we remember none of us have a monopoly on truth. And you're right. You know, Martin Luther King said, you have very little morally persuasive power with people who can feel your underlying contempt. And that's a malevolence of the heart, whether we're on the left or the right, this sort of self-righteous, I'm smarter than you, arrogant, smug belief that because of my politics, I'm right and you're wrong. Okay. And and that in both conservatives and liberals, and I would certainly agree with you, it's not good but I don't see it as left or right, but I see it as far too prevalent. There's a mean-spiritedness today and a political self-righteousness, and we all have to get off our high horses. Yeah, I, everybody every once in a while just needs to take a deep breath. It's okay, folks. We'll figure this out. And, and we should have vigorous debates about policy. I have no doubt about that. But there are good Republicans. There are good Democrats, good people. But I, you know, I worry that sometimes we're not all fighting for the same thing, and we could get off on a tangent on that. But on the other hand, you know, I want I want good, thoughtful, vigorous debate, and um, you know, I I appreciate you joining your, you know, offering your voice and your perspective, and I I find it a shame that you aren't given more of an opportunity within the Democratic Party. To have that debate, I think the country is better for it. I thought when it was Donald Trump and Joe Biden and they got rid of that third debate, I thought the country was worse for it. They should have still had it. You're listening to Jason in the House. We'll be back with more of my conversation with Marianne Williamson right after this. Marianne, I have got to ask you some questions. Okay. And and, um, these are just fun questions. Every time we do a podcast, they're just... Uh, you know, however many philosophy books you've ever read, I don't know that you're properly prepared for these rapid questions. But I, I just want to have a little fun with this, and uh, it'll give us a little more insight to you and your background. Okay? Okay. All right. Uh, first concert you ever attended? It was a reggae. It was a reggae group called Third World. It was mind-blowing. And then I also saw Hall and Oates when they were very young. <laughs> very good. I like Hall and Oates. They're, they were good. They, they're still good as far as I'm concerned. I can't yeah. say I knew the reggae group, but um, I'll take your word for it. Um, in high school, what was your high school mascot? 
Oh, wait a minute. Uh, Bel Air Cardinals. Bel Air Cardinals. All right. In junior high school, it was the Pershing Pandas. Because <laughs> there's a lot of a lot of pandas. Yeah. Okay. All right. Um, um, what's your favorite vegetable? You run for president. You get us to ask every question. So I don't know. I, don't know. I think maybe string beans. No, oh, that's good. All right, string beans. I buy that. Uh, what was your very first job? First job away from the house. Somebody actually wrote you a check for helping you do something. Yeah. Being a waitress at the Ramada Inn in Houston. Oh. Were they big tippers down there at the Ramada Inn? I think my uncle and my mother used to come in. <laughs> they would give you a nice tip. <laughs> they give me a tip. Yeah. Uh, what's your personal like superpower? Like I can do this better than most people. Like I'm I'm actually pretty good at this. What what's that for Marianne Williamson? It it doesn't make me feel I can do this. I'm better than other people, but it makes me feel I can do this, and that's prayer. Oh, that's good. That's very good. Um, yeah, I'm not saying that you're better than everybody else, but what can you do better well, than a lot of people? I, I, yeah. I take very seriously that notion of doing what the small, still voice within you. Good for you. you oh, that's good. Uh, do you have a pet growing up? Uh, schnauzers. <laughs> do you still have one? Uh, no, when my daughter was growing up, and I'm a grandmother too, by the way, I have a little three-month-old grandchild, granddaughter. Oh, congratulations. Um, we had a cat named Pepper. Oh, very good. Um, unique talent that nobody knows about. Something you can do that, like, I don't know, can you juggle with your... I can sing. You can sing. That's good talent. That's a great talent. Good for you. Uh, big one for this uh, Jason in the House podcast. Pineapple and pizza, yes or no? Did you? Oh, no, no, no. Good. Mm -hmm. See, that was something. I, I have do. my standards. I have my lines. I draw my lines. Well, that's something that the judges like, and we all, uh, that you and I can definitely agree on. So, um, last question. Best advice you ever got? Relax. It's not just about you. Get over yourself. <laughs> Good for you. Um, Marianne Williamson. Uh, candidate for the presidency of the United States on the Democratic side of the aisle. I really appreciate this conversation. It's illuminating, and I appreciate you taking the time to join us. Thank you. It was fun talking to you. You oh, take care. Thank you. Okay, I can't thank Marianne Williamson enough for her time and generosity. It was, uh, it was good to chat with her, and we can at least agree on one thing. So that was good. Please rate the podcast. Would love to have you rate it. Love to have you subscribe to it. And I want to remind people that they can listen ad-free with a Fox News Podcast Plus subscription on Apple Podcasts. And Amazon Prime members can listen to this show ad-free on the Amazon Music app. Again, thanks for listening. Rate it, review it, subscribe to it. Go out and check out uh, foxnewspodcast.com for other podcasts from the Fox Group. And uh, this has been Jason in the House. Guy Benson. Join me weekdays at 3 p.m. Eastern as we break down the biggest stories of the day with some of the biggest newsmakers and guests. Listen live on the Fox News app or get the free podcast at GuyBensonShow.com.